Well, um, Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32, Lauren is going to come and she's going to read this passage for us. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he give, gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, you have breathed it out for our benefit, Lord, so that we can know you better. And so, Lord, today may we humble ourselves before your truth. And, Lord, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be your mouthpiece today, that you would be glorified, that your people would be built up, and, Lord, that those that don't know you would see the wonder and the beauty and the glory of your gospel. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Some of you may know that um, about 1980, um, my family immigrated from from England to the United States. My father worked for British Airways, and he retired after working for 36 years for that company. And uh, we moved from England to the U.S. to Michigan in the middle of November. And I was 16 at that point in time, and I remember walking out of the airport into the Michigan sub-zero wind chill factor air, breathing it in and saying, what have I got myself into? And as I came into this culture, I began to realize that the things that I had grown to love and to know from the British culture were different here. Uh, There was a new kind of way of thinking. There was a new kind of attitude toward things. The values uh, were, were different, and they challenged me. The, the clothing was different. The dialect was different. The smells were different. The habits and practices of the young people were different. They actually wanted me to part my hair down the middle and feather it back. You remember the days. The sports were all different. I came from soccer, rugby, and cricket uh, to football, basketball, and baseball. And the food was different. Hamburgers, fried chicken, and pizza. And the amount of food was different. We went to this this one restaurant. We got off the plane, literally went to a restaurant, and it was a place in in Michigan called Harvey's. And it was an all-you-can-eat fried chicken restaurant. And friends, that was my very first experience at an all-you-can-eat anything. And of course, I satisfied myself. And then to my surprise, the host that picked us up from the airport who were showing us, you know, the, 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 this, this restaurant in, in, in the United States of America said, well, we've got to get you dessert. And so, of course, I submitted to that instruction and they ordered a banana split. And I'm thinking, you know, just a couple of scoops of ice cream and it was this big, huge tray. And of course, I had to finish it off. And, and one of the things that I realized, friends, 
was that when you come to America, you come into a new culture. And I'm looking around. I know a lot of you, and a lot of you have experienced very similar things. You come from one culture to another. There's a big big change. There's a a change in how you think. But in the land of, of America, we have large portions, large roads, large cities, large cars, large homes, and ultimately large people. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And friends, for me, moving to a different country and learning to live in a different culture came with unique challenges. But I am very thankful for my parents and for how God really ordered them to come to this country. And I have benefited from it so much. But it didn't come out come without any challenges. Now, the text before us begins the journey of the gospel into new territory. There's something new happening here in Acts chapter 9. If you remember what Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And we have seen Christ's mission unfolding as we've worked our way through Acts chapter 1 through 9. We saw, first of all, in Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 6, we saw there the witness begin on the day of Pentecost, where Peter and the rest of the apostles and disciples began preaching the gospel in other known tongues, and the church in Jerusalem was formed and began to grow. And Luke summarizes all that in in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, where he says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And that's Jerusalem. And then we saw how the the gospel began to move now into Judea and Samaria. In general, with the persecution of Saul, many Christians were fleeing, fleeing now Jerusalem. And as they went, they took the gospel with them. And it spread into Samaria, if you remember, where Philip goes and he preaches the gospel. And the city is rejoicing. And then into the coastal regions of Judea, Philip goes about the towns and villages from Azotus all the way up to Caesarea, preaching the gospel. And, and we have Jews that are, that are getting saved there. And then we saw that Saul is converted and he goes to Damascus. And Luke summarizes the effect of all that in chapter 9, verse 31, where it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Friends, this is the the mission of Christ, where the, the, the message of Christ is going forward, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But now, beginning in Acts chapter 9 and verse 32, the shift of focus of Christ's mission is now changing. It's taking place. The gospel is now heading to the end of the earth. The gospel will be moving slowly toward the Gentile people in Gentile territories. And by means of clarification, just in case you don't know, a Gentile is simply someone who is not a Jew. So it's moving from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and now it's beginning to move into these other regions, these Gentile regions. And friends, the more you head out from Jerusalem, in particular along the coast of Israel, the more Gentile presence will be found in the villages, towns, and cities in that region. And what we'll find in our text is Peter doing ministry among Christians in two towns, Lydda and Joppa. These are along the same road, ultimately out of Jerusalem, toward the coast, up toward Caesarea. And Peter's ministry will begin to have an impact on the gospel move among the Gentile peoples. And what Luke wants us to see in this short little text is that Jesus is authenticating the church's ongoing mission to the Gentiles. He's authenticating his message, his man, and his mission to the Gentiles. Now, I want to ask a question, a couple of questions before we jump into our text this morning. Question number one. Do you have the right to talk to people of another culture about the good news of Jesus Christ? 
Now, friends, that's an important question because society today is, is saying that they are offended at any idea of spreading the good news of the gospel in other contexts, in other cultures to bring about some kind of conversion. They would say that it's unethical to seek to evangelize people of other cultures. They'll say that missionaries should not be allowed to go to other countries and, 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 and speak the truth of Christ. They'll say that cultures should just be left alone because it's a westernizing of other cultures. And as a result, it would destroy those cultures. But ironically and hypocritically, They'll say those things all the while doing what they can to make sure those countries and cultures are instead waving the flags of contemporary ideology. In other words, Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ or secularism. To be sure, they have their own religion with their own gospel that they want to spread and promote. But the question still remains. Does Christianity have the right to evangelize in other countries and affect other cultures? Just hold on to that question. Question number two. Do you have the power to have effective ministry among the Gentiles? It's an important question. Are you at a loss as to how to reach your foreign friend, the one who's a Muslim, a Buddhist, maybe a Mormon, Catholic, secular atheist? Are you ill-equipped to be faithful to God as a witness? In other words, Does the gospel still work? Will talking about the good news of Jesus have any penetrating power on someone from a culture that is not already Christianized or have a Judeo-Christian ethic? I mean, as as, we've seen already in chapters 1 through 9, there was already somewhat of an understanding of Old Testament scriptures. That's what they used to spread the gospel. But now we're moving into Gentile territories. That is not necessarily true. Will the gospel work in a Muslim, a Hindu, a Taoist, or a Buddhist context? Will it have any effect among the tribal folk religions of the American Indian, the Australian Aborigine, or the Mongolian nomad, or the like? Will it have any power to penetrate the hearts of the potpourri of religious ideology that we rub shoulders with every day here in the Bay Area? I don't know if you knew this. But the Bay Area is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious melting pot that missiologists would say is the mission field. (laughs) We talk about, I want to go to the mission field. They would identify this place here as the mission field. And that being true, do we have the right to spread the gospel? And will the gospel have any effect? And friends, the, the answers to those questions will help shape our attitude about ministry to the Gentiles. Now let's seek to answer those questions as we move through this text and the context that's surrounding this text. At face value, I think you probably are with me, at face value we we might think that this passage is all about healing. (laughs) I came this morning, read this passage, it's like, all right, we're going to talk about the ministry of healing, what, what we can do, how can we be like Peter here? And on some level... Yeah, it contains two miracles, but it's much more than that. Jesus authenticates the church's ongoing mission to the Gentiles. And to authenticate means to establish something as genuine, as valid, as true. It is the real deal. And this morning, I want us to work our way through this text and and interacting with the context to help guide us toward a right perspective for ministry to the Gentiles. Let's begin here with what I'm calling an authenticated message. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this text in this point. So as ministry begins to head toward the Gentiles, Jesus is articulating, first of all, his gospel message. And he does that through the Apostle Peter's encounters with three different people. Aeneas, Tabitha, and Simon. And remember verse 31. It reminds us that this was a time of peace for the church where they were being built up and they were multiplying. And what we're told is that during the time that Peter is traveling here and there among the churches, that he comes to visit the believers who are in a town called Lydda. And that's in verse 32. And he encounters a man 
by the name of Aeneas. And what we read here is not a story. It's not a fable or some loose imagination. What we, what we have here is Peter coming to a real place, all right, town of Lydda. And Lydda was a crossroads town about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem on this main road from Jerusalem to Java. And as Peter comes to this town, he encounters a real man, Aeneas. Now, we're not told much about him except for his name. And we're told that he has a real disease. And there's two descriptions that are given here, right? He's a paralytic, and he has been bedridden for eight years. All right, so there's some clear things happening here. And what happens is that this man, Aeneas, experiences a real healing. Notice verse 34. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately immediately he arose. Friends, his healing was immediate. It was dramatic. And it was definitive. It was immediate. It was dramatic. And it was definitive. In other words, it was clear. Now, what would have looked like for someone to be bedridden as a paralytic for eight years? Anyone here ever break a a bone, like broke your arm or broke your leg, have to be in a cast, and you're in that cast for three months or something like that, and it comes time for them to cut the cast off, and you, this happened to me, I broke my wrist here, and they finally cut the cast off, and it's like, where did my arm go? It's all atrophied, right? And after the cast is cut off, you have to take some time for for rehab and to get the strength back and to build the muscle up and all that kind of stuff, right? Now just imagine the atrophy of Aeneas' body as he lay bedridden for eight years, not using his, his legs. We could assume that's what's being talked about here. But at the words of Peter, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Aeneas immediately steps up from his bed. And Peter, adding emphasis to the miracle, tells Aeneas to make your bed. Peter sounds like a parent of a teenager, right? Get up, make your bed. It had been over eight years since Aeneas had strength and ability to make his bed. But in this case, there's no rehab. There's no time to gain strength. Clearly, his healing is immediate. It's dramatic. And it's definitive. I have a nephew by the name of Zachary who has Angelman's disease. He's confined to a chair. He needs help to walk around. He needs to be diapered. He needs to be fed. And if I were in his home one minute while he's in his chair and being fed by his mother or some, some member of the family, that would be normal, that would be regular. But if I walked out of the room and came in the next minute, and he's up walking around, serving himself food, even making a bed, that would be a shock. That would not be some small thing. It wouldn't be an illusion. It couldn't be an illusion. It, was, it would be something miraculous, only something that God could do. And friends, when the news got out about his healing, if that was true of Zachary, all who had known Zachary would be in wonder and amazement. What happened? Not just because of the healing, but because it was so immediate, dramatic, and definitive. And friends, all of this resulted in real conversions, didn't it? It's stunning. We read there in verse 35, and all the residents of Lydda. Now, it's, Luke uses all loosely, right? Luke's all is not every particular person. There might have been someone hiding under the stairs or something like that, right? He, he's using this as an expression to say, look, there was a ton of people that came to faith in the Lord. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So the news of Aeneas' miraculous healing spread to these residents of Lydda and the neighboring town and region of Sharon. And Luke tells us they turned to the Lord. Friends, his healing tells us that Jesus has power over disease. Right? Let's look at the next miracle, the raising of Tabitha. 
Now we move further up the road, further up the coast, to the port town of Joppa, about 12 miles up the road from Lydda, which by foot is still a long way. I don't know, last time you walked 12 miles, still a long way. Now, here's some trivia for you. I spent the first five of my years, my life, in Joppa, which is now the modern city of Jaffa, which is now a suburb of Tel Aviv. And although I was young, I remember that our backyard transitioned into a large orange grove. Now, here in California, we may not understand what I'm going to say here, but Jaffa oranges are to Europe what sun-kissed oranges are to much of the United States. This was a prosperous region, a fruitful region, but it was also a port city. So again, we come to a real place, Joppa. And as such, being a port city, you're going to have you're a lot of Jews, but because it's a port city, you're also going to have Gentiles, a growing presence of Gentiles in that location. And now we have a real woman by the name of Tabitha or Dorcas, right? This is her name, Tabitha or Dorcas. Tabitha was her Aramaic name. Dorcas was her Greek name. I know the junior hires in here right now are snickering at the name Dorcas. And if you're not a junior hire, you probably are one in heart, and you were probably thinking that. Why? Because it sounds like dork, right? But the reality is, I am the dork from Joppa, but Dorcas is actually a beautiful name. It means gazelle, which has the idea of grace and power and beauty and elegance and strength. In the Song of Solomon, the beloved is likened to a gazelle. So there's something wonderful and beautiful about this name. Unfortunately, it's a name that's lost its favor because it's kind of colloquial connotation. But think about her character, too. That What are we told here? She didn't just have a great name. Her character reinforced what her name testified. She was full of good works and acts of charity. It would appear that she had wealth, and she chose to use her wealth to help those who were less fortunate. That seems to be evidenced by the widows that are there weeping and mourning her death. Now, I don't know about you, but the words, she was full of good works and acts of charity, would be a good epitaph on anyone's gravestone. Clearly, she was missed. Clearly, her life had an impact. Clearly, she was loved and respected by many. And it's worth asking the question, isn't it? What will people say about me and my character when the Lord takes me home? Will I be missed? Will I have had an impact on others? Would I have left a dent truth of the matter is most of us will be quickly forgotten. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Your, your family might remember you, some particular friends, but life is a vapor. But being full of good works and acts of charity would be a, an honorable way to remember someone if that was true of them. So here we have a woman now who experiences real death. We're told they're in those days. So in the days when, when Peter was going from village to village, interacting with the believers that were there, in the time when he was in Lydda, during that time of peace, this is what happened. We're not told what she died from, except to say that she became ill and she died. And the family is preparing her body for burial or washing her body. They, they lay her out in the upper room. But there were some believers there that heard about Peter being in the nearby town of Lydda. And so they send two of the brothers to go to Lydda to find Peter and to urge him to come. Now, we're not told for what purpose. We can assume, however, that they had some hope that through Peter, something might happen. And Peter, when they come, is willing. And he arose, we're told, and he went with them. And he arrives and he enters into the upper room and he finds it filled with weeping, mourning widows who took the time to show him how much Tabitha meant to them, right? Here's the scarf that she made for me. 
Here's, here's this dress she made. Isn't it beautiful? All the while pouring out tears. Here are the tunics. There's these long undergarments she, she gave us. She made for us. These were items of value in and of themselves, but also because Tabitha had made them and given them. So clearly she had touched many lives by her acts of charity and good works. And all had come to grieve and to show their respects to the family and to demonstrate how much she was loved and how much she will be missed. Now, friends, this is a deeply emotional scene of a Christian family and community full of sorrow and despair, honoring the loss of their beloved friend, Gazelle. Now, friends, learn from this text that the life you have yet to live can be one of significance. When you take an interest in others, when, when you stop to guide them in the ways of the Lord, when you, when you help them when they're in need, when you give of yourself when they are experiencing times of distress, don't underestimate the influence you can have by praying for others or by simply, simple acts of kindness, in particular during times of distress. A real place, a real woman, a real death, a real resurrection. Peter has everyone leave the room, and he does five things. He kneels. It's a posture of dependence and humility before the Lord. He prays. We're not given the content of his prayer, but surely he was praying for Christ to raise her from the dead. He speaks, commanding Tabitha, arise. He helps when she opens her eyes, needs to get up, and he presents, he presents her alive to both the saints and the widows. Wow, Tabitha is, was really loved, she's really dead, but now she's really alive. And there are numerous witnesses to give evidence to the fact that she was truly dead, but now alive. And of course, her resurrection results in real conversion, right? And it came known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So what's the point of these two miracles? The point is to demonstrate Jesus' power over disease and Jesus' power over death, his immediate, his dramatic, and his definitive power. So that... <laughs> the message of the gospel would be proclaimed, heard, and believed. My friends, this is so important. These stories don't stop at the healings. They don't stop at the resurrection. They go on. They press forward. See, when the pastor says many turned to the Lord or many believed in the Lord, we can't be naive to think that the miracles themselves communicated who Jesus was. No, they are the immediate, dramatic, definitive authentication of the message that Peter was preaching. Hear this. With the miracles came the authenticated message of the gospel. How is Aeneas healed, people would ask. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, our long-awaited Messiah, who went to the cross, who died to forgive you for your sin. And how is Tabitha raised from the dead? She's raised by the power of Jesus, who himself conquered death by rising from the tomb. So yes, the passage is about two miracles, a healing, a resurrection, they're both magnificent demonstrations of Jesus' power over disease and death, but they are not the end in and of themselves. They show man's spiritual condition full of disease ending in death. They are the means to the end, the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that only in him can you find true and lasting healing. You don't just look at a healing and say, oh, okay, now I know exactly what to do. No, someone has to explain to you who this person is that has done this in this power. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? The third thing we find here 
is the hospitality of Simon. Notice verse 43. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon a tanner. So with Aeneas, we've seen that Jesus has power over disease. With Tabitha, we've seen that Jesus has power over death. And in verse 43, with Simon, we see that Jesus has power over discrimination. Now, this is, this is a growing, developing theme that now just becomes something important, in particular for Peter. This might, you might want to say, seem out of place, but actually it's central because the, the reason we might think it's out of place is simply because we don't realize how controversial this is. Here you have a Jew living in the home of Simon the Tanner. A tanner would be someone who is unclean. And Peter is willing now to actually go and to live there. And we're going to find now, as we press on in this gospel, sorry, in, this, in, this, uh, uh, in the book of Acts here, that this, this move, things are going to be stripped away so that gospel can go to the Gentiles. Christ is taking his gospel to the Gentiles, and he's doing it even through breaking down the walls of discrimination. So this is, this is our text, friends. And we could stop there if we want, but that would be insufficient. Now, some of you might say, no, Pastor, we want you to stop right now. But I'm saying, no, we need to press on. You see, Christ is not just looking to authenticate his gospel message to the Gentiles. He's also looking to authenticate Peter as his man to begin Gentile ministry. That's the second point. Understandably, you might be a little confused at this point because you're thinking to yourself, I thought that God had called Saul to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and you would be right. But did you notice that in Acts, Paul doesn't show up again until chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, when Barnabas goes to Tarsus to bring Paul back to Antioch with him? That might be another eight or so years after this. Now it's Peter who will begin Christ's ministry to the end of the earth, and later it will be Paul who will continue it after Peter. And what Luke wants us to see is that Peter is Christ's man with Christ's message on Christ's mission. And there are two points from the context of our passage that help us to see why this is true. And I want to, first of all, just say this, that Peter mirrors the ministry of Jesus. These two encounters that Peter has with Aeneas and Tabitha are a mirror of what Luke has already recorded for Theophilus, if you remember, in, chapter, in, in, in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel was volume one. Acts is volume two. So there's a context now for Luke speaking to Theophilus. He's the same recipient of this book. And I want to begin by asking some questions. Who was it that healed Aeneas? Who was it that raised Tabitha? Was it Peter or was it someone else? And you might be right to say, well, it was both Peter and Jesus. But what does the text say? It says when Peter spoke, speaks to Aeneas, he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter is Christ's man, but it is Jesus who is doing the healing. Any power Peter may have only comes from Jesus himself. So let's look at two passages and see if we can see the parallels that are taking place here. First of all, Luke chapter 5 and verse 24. Here we have the healing of the paralytic. The man who's been a paralytic, he's brought by four, if you remember. They break off the roof. Jesus is there teaching. They lower him down. And, and later in the context of the discussion there, this is what we read, verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This is the dramatic healing of this paralytic by Jesus with the words, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. With just a word, this healing is designed to demonstrate Jesus' absolute authority to forgive sins. You understand, yes, he was wanting to heal the man, but more importantly than that, he wants his sins forgiven. 
It was Jesus who heals, but more importantly, it's Jesus who forgives. And then Luke chapter 8, verse 51. Jairus comes to Jesus, if you remember the story, while Jesus is teaching. And he pleads with him to come home with him to his house because his 12-year-old daughter is near death. And when Jairus is returning with Jesus, he receives the news that his daughter had died. We pick it up at verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will, uh, she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. And what's Luke doing there? He's making sure we understand that she really was dead, right? All the witnesses, she's dead. But, verse 54, taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Friends, these two miracles are designed to deliberately mirror the saving work of Jesus. To show that Peter is Christ's man with Christ's message on Christ's mission. And here at the beginning of this new section of Acts, these two miracle encounters Peter has with Aeneas and Tabitha are the pebble that makes the crack in the dam of the gospel ministry to the Gentiles. And soon the waters of gospel witness and conversion will flood into the, earth, the ends of the earth through the ministry of Paul and others. And what we're seeing here is that Christ's saving work, his gospel witness, is being offered to all nations. And friends, that is controversial if you're a Jew. Now look closely at the next verse. Acts chapter nine, or Luke chapter 9, verse 1. And this is helpful for us. And he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and heal. This power to heal, this power to raise someone from the dead was not an everyday experience. It was a unique power and authority given specifically to the apostles. Now, I'm not saying we don't pray for these things. We do. I'm not saying that we don't believe in miracles. We do. We believe that can happen. God can do what he chooses to do. We leave that with him. But we're not the apostles. And we've not been given the power and authority to heal or to raise people from the dead. But we can come boldly to the throne of grace and pray for Christ to do what only he can do. He can bring healing to those who are sick. He can restore broken people, marriages and families and lives. He can bring about miraculous changes in people's lives. And that, friends, all of that is good. But even more important than all of that, is that through Christ we are all healed from our disease and sin and death through his shed blood on the cross. See, Peter mirrors the ministry of Jesus. And Luke is just anchoring that for us. Secondly, Peter advances the mission of Jesus. I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 16 and verses 15 and following, and where we find Jesus asking Peter a very penetrating question. We're told here, he said to him, this is Jesus speaking now, but who do you, Peter, say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Barjona, Bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, you are pebble, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So what is the rock that Jesus is referring to here? It's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. This is, the, this is the, the rock. This is what is going to build the church. 
Now read on. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So clearly, Jesus is giving Peter, the leader of the disciples, the leader of the apostles here, authority on earth for entry into the kingdom of heaven. So Peter is one to whom Jesus gives the keys. Peter is given authority over the mission Jesus has called him to, to proclaim the gospel that Jesus is the Christ, but to also authenticate the advancement of the gospel as it spreads from Jerusalem to Judea, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When the gospel is preached in Jerusalem and 3,000 Jews are converted, it is Peter who is present when they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 8 and verses 14 through 17, when the Samaritans listen to the gospel witness of Philip and are converted, Peter comes with John and he comes and by the laying on of hands, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See what's happening here. Peter has been given the authority to authenticate the spread of the gospel. As this this gospel now is moving into Gentile territory, who is it that's preaching while the Holy Spirit is being poured out on the Gentiles? Let's read it, Acts chapter 10, verses 44 and 45. Here the context is Peter has been speaking the gospel. Uh, He's been invited by Cornelius to preach the gospel to this Gentile audience. And so he's now talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of, of, of Jesus as well as his own testimony. And we read this, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And just note what's said next. And the believers from among the circumcised, those would be the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. My friends, this is... Really important stuff. So this is there's, there's something happening here in Acts that's important for us to see. Christ is beginning movement now toward this ministry toward the Gentiles. As the mission moves from Jerusalem to Judea Samaria to the Gentiles, God brings Peter back into center stage. And Peter is present to oversee and authenticate the spread of the gospel into these regions. Luke is authenticating that Peter is Christ's Man, Christ, with Christ's message, carrying out Christ's mission. So friends, now having looked at the authenticated message and the authenticated man, I want us to consider an authenticated mission. See, Jesus commanded his apostles to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that mission is still alive and well today. And the reality is that if you are a follower of Christ, we are Christ's men and women called to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah to the end of the earth. We don't have apostolic power, but we do have Christ who is at work through our evangelistic efforts. So if you're a child of God, you're called to the mission of the church, to proclaim the truth of God, that Jesus is the Messiah to the Jew and Gentile alike. But it is Jesus who is at work through you. It's always been Jesus who's been at work through his chosen vessels. So let's go back and ask those two questions. Do you have the right to talk to people of another culture about the good news of Jesus Christ? Yes. Not only do you have the right, but you have the God-given responsibility. Now, what must be clear is that the gospel redeems people. It doesn't redeem cultures. This is important because a lot of times people say, we've got to redeem the culture. No, 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 no. The gospel redeems People, cultures don't get into heaven. People get into heaven. And we have as our goal to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to individuals from all tribes and nations who will then believe 
And that gospel and the further teachings of Scripture will need to be fleshed out in the context of their culture. We're not to take America to the world, but to take Christ and his gospel to the world. And friends, why why is a church service in South America starting at 11 o'clock? You realize it started at 11 o'clock in our country because the farmers had to take care of their cows and all that kind of stuff, and so it bumped the numbers. There's all history behind that. Why in South America do they start church at the same time? Why do church choirs in Africa wear choir robes? Why is there a loud band at a youth event in Ukraine singing theologically distorted and barren Hillsong worship songs like Oceans? Because they have been encouraged to embrace Western Christianity rather than biblical Christianity. We don't want them to be like America. We want them to be like Jesus. Question number two. Do you have the power to have effective ministry among the Gentiles? Well, yes, of course you do. Jesus calls us to the same mission and to proclaim the same message. The reality is, friends, 99.9% of your gospel witness is going to be to a Gentile audience. In our church, we have people from, and I, I sat back and I reflected on this, so hear me out. We have people from all ethnicities, Russian, Ukrainian, Romanian, English, Scottish, Irish, French, German, Portuguese, Italian, African, Mexican, Honduran, Tanzanian, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Filipino, Indonesian, Indian, and Greek. And if I missed you, I'm sorry. (laughs) Friends, this isn't supposed to work. These are all different cultures, different ethnicities. We're all too different, too divided, too diverse, too opposite. But it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us together. This is what the church is supposed to look like. So who gave us the right to become followers of Christ? Jesus did. When he sent out the apostles on their mission to the end of the earth. So who gives us the right to be witnesses to the end of the earth? Jesus does. And will the gospel still work? Will it take root in the Gentile heart? Will it change people who are lost and wandering in darkness To answer that question, just look around you. We're Gentiles. And the gospel has penetrated our hearts. It still is the mechanism that God has for people to be redeemed. And I know it can be discouraging. But God's mission and his message hasn't changed. Now, I want to bring this all to a close. Pull some things from here that I think might be helpful. First of all, your life struggle is a platform for gospel witness. If your business is struggling, it's a platform for gospel witness. If you're struggling to deal with a mentally unstable family member, it's a platform for witness. If your health continues to put you in the hospital, it's a platform for gospel witness. If your child has chosen to mock or scorn your Christian faith, it's a platform for gospel witness. If you've lost your job or have to move or get in an accident, it's a platform for gospel witness. And I could go on and on. And we believe these things. Why? Because As Christians, our hope is in Christ. And we know that he hasn't abandoned us. And we know that he has the power to help us and to guide us and to give us strength because as followers of Christ, we know that God is working through our struggle. We may not understand the particulars, but we trust that he is at work accomplishing his purposes for his glory. So don't underestimate the power of your gospel witness during those difficult times because he may be using your struggle to further his mission to the end of the earth. Secondly, your ministry within the church is an opportunity for gospel witness. And I'm kind of leaning back here on the character Dorcas. 
when you cook a meal or provide a gift card, take someone to the airport or the hospital visit, you help them move into an apartment, God is working through you and your life is having an impact. When you teach the children, clean the bathrooms, fold the bulletins, or introduce yourself to someone new after church, God is working through you to change and shape people's lives. Your good works, your acts of charity might seem small to you, but God uses them in ways you can't imagine. So don't underestimate the power of your gospel witness when you minister to your own church family. Finally, your gospel witness is the key to the kingdom of God. Now, you're not Peter. You've not been given authority. But Peter declared and confessed something to be true, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And friends, that is the key that you and I have been entrusted with, that when believed, opens the door into the kingdom of God. Now, friends, that's powerful, isn't it? And that's daunting. You and I possess the key. And you have the right to use the key. And the key still works. Lord, help us today to gain a picture through, Lord, these, these two incredible stories and encounters that Peter has that remind us of, of, Lord, the fact that you are at work through your chosen vessels who go with your message on your mission. And, Lord, you've placed us here and you've called us to proclaim your truth. You've called us to continue this, this push that the, the gospel would go to the end of the earth. So Lord, help us to, to leave today with hearts and minds that are encouraged and strengthened, Lord, that not only do we have the right to do this, but Lord, we have the wonderful privilege of doing this. And Lord, it might be daunting when people just push us aside or don't want to listen, but let us, let us not stop. Let us not be surprised. Let us be uh, acting by faith as we began this morning that your gospel is still at work when it is proclaimed, when it's shared, when people hear it. And Lord, to trust you and to seize opportunities, Lord, in a right Christ-like way, to communicate the truth of your gospel, to be a part, Lord, of the spreading of your kingdom through the ministry of your word. Oh, Lord, we need your help. We need you in our lives. And, Lord, we need to see that we are the vehicles through which you work. Lord, help us to give us that fresh vision today. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.